hard-hitting medical truth, cutting through conflict and confusion to the understanding you're searching for. Join Dr. Peter McCullough, world-renowned medical expert and practicing physician for this edition of the McCullough Report. Your life may depend on it. Let's get real, let's get loud on America Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report, and I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. I'm broadcasting today from the Park Lane Hotel, which is just on the southern border of Central Park in New York City. We're at a coffee shop, so you're going to hear some banter as people come in and order their coffees. It's a little early in the morning, but this is when I do my reporting. This is when I can put my thoughts together and have the time uh, to do it. So I want to update the readers with respect to neurologic injury after COVID-19 vaccination. And the first paper I want to review is called the NeuroCovex study. And the NeuroCovex study was published by Salsone and colleagues in the journal Vaccines, uh, October 21st, 2023. This is an Italian population-based study of neurologic complications after COVID-19 vaccinations. And it was done in those individuals 18 years of older who received at least two doses of vaccination from the vaccine hub in uh, the Milan-Lombardi area of Italy between the 7th and the 16th of July, 2021. And the questionnaire was to capture neurologic events, and the results were stunning. 19,108 vaccinated individuals, about uh, 15,000 of them uh, had Pfizer as the lead vaccine. 31.2% developed post-vaccine neurologic symptoms, and uh, they included uh, tremors, insomnia, muscle spasms, headaches, paresthesia, numbness and tingling, vertigo, dizziness, diplopia, double-eyed vision, uh, sleepiness, uh, and those were the most common. Now, we worry about other uh, syndromes, and uh, to be uh, uh, clear on this, um, there are some very uh, serious neurologic sy- syndromes that can occur after COVID-19 vaccination. And I've reported on most of these on the Courageous Discourse um, uh, uh, substack. Uh, you know, one of them is stroke. And uh, we reviewed the case of Jamie Foxx, who purportedly took COVID-19 vaccines and suffered a stroke, of which he was hospitalized for months and needed uh, probably uh, endotracheal as well as uh, feeding gastrostomy tubes in place. Fox said he had tubes in his body. Um, and, uh, you know, I wanted to point out uh, that both ischemic and hemorrhagic stroke have occurred in large numbers. And in a paper by uh, Joseph Finster et al. from Vienna, Austria, he points out that it's really the spike protein from the vaccine that's doing it. And um, he has a list in table number three of uh, facial palsy uh, and other cranial nerve palsies uh, at a high frequency, uh, Guillain-Barre syndrome, uh, an ascending uh, a pr- a motor and sensory uh, paralysis of the extremities, and small fiber neuropathy, as well as myositis or muscle aches that they are uh, you know, fairly high up on the list of frequencies. So he gives them three pluses, meaning that they're caused by the COVID-19 vaccines. And then I think one of the most 
um, common of all the neurologic sy syndromes is really a cardiovascular syndrome as well, uh, posterior orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, or POTS. POTS is the heart palpitations, the fluctuations in uh, blood pressure and heart rate. You saw a tennis uh, ball girl uh, basically pass out with what looks like POTS on a recent video this week. Well, in a paper uh, by Kwan and colleagues, huge study, uh, 284,592 individuals. The risk of POTS was, uh, was quite high. This was published in uh, Nature Cardiovascular Research, and uh, POTS was listed number three in the cardiovascular syndromes. The first was myocarditis, the second is dysautonomia, which is a precursor to POTS, and then POTS uh, itself. So this is well laid out uh, in the literature for you to for you to review. And I wanted you to get the citations uh, because you know when uh, you're listening to me, um, I'm not just giving my ungrounded opinion. That I'm constantly updating you with the key medical literature to help you understand things better. Now, a very important paper in the in the neurologic spectrum of disease was published by Chatterjee and Chakravetti and colleagues, and it was published in Current Neurology and Neuroscience Reports. And then this um, paper is a review paper on the neurologic complications following COVID-19 vaccines. It was published in November of 2022. And I want to read these off to you because the authors have evidence that all of these syndromes have been associated with and reported after taking COVID-19 vaccines. In terms of the central nervous system, that means the brain and the spinal cord, headache, central venous thrombosis, ischemic strokes, intracranial and subarachnoid hemorrhage, encephalopathy, encephalitis, seizures, acute disseminated encephalomyelitis, cranial nerve palsies, transverse myelitis, which is paralyzation at the level of the spinal cord, optic neuritis that causes blindness, olfactory dysfunction, losing smell, that's right, losing smell after vaccination, neurologic, uh, neuroleptic malignant syndrome, functional neurologic disorders, relapse, exacerbation of prior neurologic illness, and I feature this on my substack. This includes Parkinson's as well as uh, muscular dis um, uh, I'm sorry, uh, multiple sclerosis getting worse after COVID-19 vaccination. In terms of the peripheral nervous system, we're looking at Guillain-Barre syndrome for sure causing neurologic complications, Bell's palsy, myositis, rhabdomyolitis, Parsonage-Turner syndrome, Herpes zoster, that means shingles in all different locations. Uh, Diane Feinstein, former center, just died of neuroinvasive uh, shingles, which, uh, which almost certainly occurred after reactivation of the vaccine. I had a patient last week, believe this or not, she took uh, COVID-19 vaccines two weeks afterwards, developed rectal and buttocks shingles. She said it was so painful, miserable, she couldn't work. It lasted for months. Cochleopathy, that is a problem with a balance, ocular man manifestations and blindness, uh, sensory neuropathy, and then relapse and exacerbation of prior neurologic illness, again, in terms of peripheral nervous system. So this is in the peer-reviewed literature, and I wanted you to you know, understand that there is a basis for this. Uh, there's a fairly rich literature that exists with respect to... Um, COVID-19 vaccines um, causing neurologic problems. Now, some of the uh, terrifying neurologic problems include seizures, and I want you to understand 
that uh, in a paper from Taiwan uh, by Fan and colleagues, they reported a 22-year-old man who had his first seizure six days after the second shot of Moderna. And um, this uh, causes a form of inflammation in the brain. We don't know who's going to develop it, but uh, they believe it's triggered by the spike protein in the brain. Uh, he developed a status of epilepticus. It was very, very difficult to treat. He needed multiple medications, hospitalizations, and this has been my experience. Seizures after COVID-19 vaccination are a total disaster. They normally take multiple uh, medications to get this under control and um, can be extraordinarily uh, difficult to treat. So that's a wrap-up and review of the uh, neurologic uh, syndromes. The, the, the next major category that we covered over and over again on the program are the cardiovascular manifestations of COVID-19 vaccination. Never have we had a vaccine that seems to target the heart. You're going to hear my review of the myocarditis, myocarditis literature with slides that was presented in the um, Brazilian Chamber of Deputies, which is, in a sense, a parliamentary group in Brazil. I did this on behalf of um, of colleagues that asked me to do it. I couldn't be there in person, but we wanted them to hear. And that's going to be the second half of the uh, show. What we're going to do first is we're going to bring on Mr. Rod Spears. I interviewed him regarding the neurologic syndrome he developed which is um, a large uh, motor neuron neuropathy. It's similar to Guillain-Barre syndrome. You'll hear him describe it, uh, but it's a very stunning report. And he's going to be actually an empiric open trial of McCullough Protocol-based spike protein detoxification. He'd never heard of it before, so he's going to give it a try. We're shipping product out to him and he'll let us know when he gets it and starts it. Then we're going to check in 3, 6, 9, 12 months, just like I would in the clinic, as I try to help people get better from these terrible neurologic syndromes. So as disabled as he is, it's been my experience that the neurologic syndromes are most responsive to base spike detoxification. That is, the spike protein must be attacking the nerves once we're able to degrade and dissolve the spike protein in theory and clear it out, the nerves can recover. Uh, this is a wonderful, wonderful observation. I've seen it happen multiple times, so uh, we'll have um, great hope, but we'll also be praying for Mr. Rod Shears in the UK. I think you're really going to like him. He's a former CEO of a, of a hospital, a 77-year-old man, senior marathoner, who's now in a wheelchair after taking uh, two AstraZeneca and then one Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine. Um, now, I wanted to give you uh, an update. This has been a big piece of news. Um, you remember in Texas, where I live, our Attorney General, um, Ken Paxton, was impeached by the House of Representatives based on 12 artic uh, 20 articles of impeachment, all of which were based on very old events that happened prior to his most recent election. He had um, you know, made amends. There were settlements. He handled things that in his office. They decided to try to use this for articles of impeachment. The Senate did not convict him. And so Paxson, after several months of being deactivated in Texas, has now been reactivated. And this week, he's filed lawsuit against Pfizer. Now, how can a state attorney general sue Pfizer? 
Um, he's using what's called the long arm principle. That is, when business is conducted in Texas, it doesn't matter where the company is or where the products come from, the long arm of the law, the Texas law, can reach and bite anybody who's broken the law. Well, how has Pfizer broken the law? Paxton contends that Pfizer has misrepresented their vaccines in terms of safety and efficacy. And I think many of our listeners uh, would agree uh, now Pfizer is going to be um, held accountable. There's going to be discovery. uh, And it takes the state attorney general to sue a pharmaceutical company in order to get some traction in the legal community. Individuals have not been able to do it. Um, clearly having the state of Texas the long arm of the law and a fearless attorney general Ken Paxton uh, doing this is huge I can't emphasize how important this is so we're going to look forward to that development and the final quick hit that I have for you in the monologue is that the Chinese pneumonia that you hear about uh, it appears that this is a macrolide resistant mycoplasma pneumonia easily treated with ciprofloxacin, the other forms of uh, fluoroquinolins, or tetracyclines in adults. We could use doxycycline as an example, and I use that very frequently in my practice. So please do not get alarmed. The Chinese pneumonia appears to be well understood. We have diagnostic tests in the United States that can diagnose it in 20 minutes, get the right treatment. Uh, It's not a serious form of pneumonia, and uh, again, it's easily treated. It's not going to be the next COVID-19 or the next pandemic. So that's my update for you on the monologue, uh, Dr. Peter McCullough reporting in from the beautiful Park Lane Hotel in New York City, and uh, it's wonderful. I'm going to go jogging in Central Park later on. we got a, a very pretty day, and then later on tonight, I will be um, honored to attend the gala event from the International Association of Top Professionals, and obviously have an award, and there'll be a lot of red carpet ceremonies. We took pictures yesterday. Uh, outside the NASDAQ uh, banner in Times Square, and our pictures were up on the banner, which was a lot of fun. I did a photo shoot with former Miss Universe Michelle McLean, who came over from Namibia, and her husband uh, with my wife, Maha, many of you know her, as well as the corporate leadership of the wellness company. So you'll see some pictures of myself with CEO Foster Colson, uh, the chief operating officer, Peter Galuli, and uh, another key operational leader, uh, Brandon Kimper. Uh, Two Canadians, two Americans, all leading uh, a company that's providing solutions. And I told people when I got into this entire arena with COVID-19, I was not only a critic, but I've been trying to provide solutions. And I do that one by one in my practice. But with a wellness company, we provide solutions on a national and international basis. So please check out uh, TWC.health. Remember, the promo code for discounts from uh, my podcasts are Courage, and those from America Out Loud come through the banner bar, and you can compound the promo codes when you get to the order um, section. So you can really take advantage of this, being a follower, Dr. McCullough on the McCullough Report, and following me on Substack. So with all that, let's get on to the show. You're listening to the McCullough Report. This is Dr. Peter McCullough. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report. The wellness company is offering the Signature Series Spike Support Formula. 
The Wellness Company supports this formula because it's designed to remove spike protein from the body in its design, in terms of its mechanism of action. The accumulation of spike protein occurs because of repeated COVID-19 vaccination and COVID-19 illness. The spike protein stays in the body a long time, causes heart, brain, body tissue damage, as well as blood clotting. The spike support formula is designed to help the body catabolize the spike protein, begin to remove it through its natural mechanisms. It includes natokinase, the principal ingredient, 2,000 fibrinolytic units or 100 milligrams. Those are uh, equal in terms of uh, conversion. Selenium, 75 micrograms. Black sativa extract, 500 milligrams. Irish sea moss powder, 500 milligrams. Green tea extract, 150 milligrams. And dandelion extract, 50 milligrams. Why the other ingredients? The other ingredients are designed to help block the spike protein's effect on tissues, help tissues recover and repair. It's the best we have now when patients are in need. At this point in time, we can't make broad therapeutic claims regarding disease states, but we can tell you that this is reasonable in terms of supporting the body and helping the body clear spike protein and allowing your pathway back to better health. So go to twc.health and check out the spike support formula you can use our promotional codes or go through our banner bars on our site to get promotional codes and discounts on your purchase. Millions of Americans are needlessly suffering from the long-haul effects of the toxic spike protein. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company designed their spike support formula to counteract harmful spike protein from COVID-19 and vaccines so you can feel your best. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Loud Talk Radio. This is The McCullough Report. It's a great pleasure for me to reach across the Atlantic Ocean today from America to the United Kingdom. And I've invited on the show a very, very special man, a, a, a senior athlete from the United Kingdom, Rod Shears, who's about 15 miles outside of central London. And I've asked Rod to come on and tell us his experience with the COVID-19 mass vaccination program from a very personal perspective. Rod, welcome to the McCullough Report. Thank you, Peter. Well, why don't you tell us your vignette? What exactly happened? Well, I'm 77 years of age. Um, I've been a very fit person. I've been running since the age of 28. Um, and two years ago, um, I uh, took the had the COVID vaccine. Um, I felt that, you know, it was a responsible thing to do. That's what the media was telling us. Um, and my that was very life-changing for me. As I say, I've been a very fit person. I was a CEO of uh, private and public companies, a qualified pilot. I weigh, I'm six foot two feet tall. I weigh uh, 180 pounds, always kept myself fit. Uh, I, at, in 2021, I was uh, running um, 16 miles a week, 60 miles on the bike. And then February, February 21, 
I had this vaccine for the reasons I just stated. About two weeks after that, I'm out running and I'm thinking, gosh, you know, this is hard work. Something's going on in my left leg. And so I, I didn't think too much of it. I went out again some days later. Same thing. This happened four times to the point where I had to walk. Um, and so I, I, I went and saw an osteopath and said, you know, what, what's going on here? She looked and she said, Rod, you know, you've been running 45 years. Your body probably needs a bit of a break. Stick to the bike. She gave me some manipulation, uh, but it, things didn't improve. Progressively through the year, um, this left leg was getting to the point where it, it, uh, it was actually I was limping. I certainly couldn't run. It was affecting my walking. I saw my, um, I, I contacted my general practitioner and I said, look, you know, something's going on. Um, maybe I should see a neurologist. She, she made a, a um, private referral for me. And in December, early December 21, I saw this neurologist and um, he uh, sent me for some electromagnetic testing after a, after a brief examination and then called me back a few days later and he said, you have got motor neuron disease. And uh, following that, I was referred to um, uh, Oxford University where, in fact, they confirmed the diagnosis, but told me that it was atypical. Um, it wasn't what they were, what they would normally see, um, uh, because it was tended to be confined to my legs. Well, since then, I find myself in a wheelchair. Uh, very much a life-changing situation. What I'm conscious of is that I was perfectly fit. Um, up until the time I had that vaccination. And the onset of my problems was around 10 days following that vaccination. Um, I, did, I, I, I had the, uh, in the, in the April, I had the second vaccination because I, I, I wasn't conscious that the vaccination in the early stage I hadn't tied the two things together. It was on reflection afterwards that um, this that my life changed. Um, that's in in a summary where I'm at. Um, and um, yeah, I've uh, regret the day that I ever had that vaccination. And the more that I hear, the more information that comes out, the more that I th feel that. The, 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 the pharmaceutical companies were hopelessly, uh, it was hopelessly inadequate, their research to actually thrust that onto the public. Now, Rod, 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 let me ask you, what brand of vaccine did you take in February of 2021? Yeah, February 21, uh, AstraZeneca. Um, then in the April, I had the second AstraZeneca. Um, and later in the year, the booster, um, which was a Pfizer. And when was the booster taken? The booster was November 21. Okay. So, so you were pretty deep into it. Do you think 
that with each shot that that actually made the condition worse? Um, it 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 would be difficult to uh, to say because it it was getting progressively worse from the onset, and as I say, the onset was uh, literally ten days following the first vaccination. And uh, do you have any difficulty with sensation? Can you actually feel things normally in your legs? Yeah, I can feel things. But what I, after the first vaccination and this difficulty with the initial running, um, I was getting a sensation where the the muscles were um, uh, were twitching, uh, predominantly in the left leg that actually began to spread over other parts of my body. And the, um, uh, the diagnosis by the neurologist in the following December, um, he diagnosed that there was widespread denervation in all four limbs, but predominantly the left leg, as my um, report suggested. Now, Rod, if... if uh... If you were, if I was to have you stand, don't do it. But if I was to have you stand, and you know, you hang on to a table or or a countertop, could you actually raise your heels off the ground? Uh, we, we you just kind of do a toe raise, or, uh, or a, a can you do that? No, I I couldn't do that. I would uh, to get out of this wheelchair. Uh, I would need assistance. If it's a little bit higher with two sticks. I'm able to push myself up, um, but standing for more than more more than a minute is uh, is too difficult for me now. And have you had any problem with your bowels or your bladder? Um, I, in as much as being a pretty fit person, I was very very regular um, with the inactivity. That's that that's not so much the case. Uh, bladder problems, but bladder pretty normal, I guess. Okay, and um, with uh, with this condition, has the term Guillain-Barré syndrome come up at all? Yes, yeah, it it it, uh, it has because in uh, uh, during the course of twenty two May twenty two, my family took me to um, Corfu where I was pretty unwell um, and we brought in a, lo a local doctor um, who in actual fact said, well, you know, he said there is a link between the AstraZeneca um, and, oh, I think we refer to it Gillian Barr syndrome. Right. Um, and this the symptoms are very similar to what you're experiencing. Now, uh, what forms of treatment have been attempted? Well, I was put on a drug trial, um, uh, which was a repurposed blood pressure um, uh, medication. Um, it had been, they found in the laboratory that it, it had some benefit protecting the neurons um, in mice and believe it or not, angelfish. Um, so I was put on a course of that. Um, which that um, that trial concluded in um, March this year. And uh, but has there been any attempt to use uh, 
corticosteroids? No. Or how about what's called plasma exchange? Did you come in and actually get exchanges of, of, of blood plasma? No. Okay. And have you uh, heard about what's uh, being termed now McCullough Protocol base spike detoxification? Um, no, I haven't. Um... But, you know, this is a proposal. Uh, I've published it with Dr. Proctor from my center in the United States that the cause of the motor neuron neuropathy as well as potentially full-blown Guillain-Barre syndrome is the spike protein. The spike protein yeah. is installed by the genetic code of AstraZeneca and Pfizer, and that's what damages the nerves. That's the bad news. The good news is if one can actually help the body eliminate the spike protein or detoxify it from the body, then there's a chance for neurological recovery. And so base spike protein detoxification is with three natural over-the-counter um, products, natokinase, bromelain, and curcumin. So the base spike protein detoxification is with three natural products, natokinase, bromelain, and curcumin. Now, we don't have any randomized trials showing recovery in various forms of neurologic conditions, but we have a lot of careful observations. And I've recently held a call with doctors in the United Kingdom who are uniformly seeing patients improve with a variety of vaccine neurologic injury syndromes, but it's taking three, six, nine, or 12 months. But McCullough Protocol based spike detoxification could be something you could consider. It's very low risk. I think there's a, a little in terms of safety risk to you, and it may be something you can do to, to positively start getting yourself out of this condition. You should not be this way the rest of your life. Well, certainly, you know, I'm very open-minded and with uh, certainly no stone unturned. If there's anything that's got a possibility, then, you know, I'd certainly be very interested. Good. Well, I'll send you the information on this. And, uh, you know, I do want to ask you, though, Rod, uh, what's your message now to people who are still considering taking boosters? My message to uh, on vaccinations across the whole spectrum following this that that pr proceed with extreme caution. Um, that these I, I I'm conscious of the fact that the body um, uh, uh, cures an awful lot of problems, and I don't believe that these vaccinations that. Um, uh, are actually, I don't think the risk is is actually uh, worth considering them. Especially since COVID is so mild now and it's treatable. Well, we've been talking to Mr. Rod Spears, former CEO uh, in the United Kingdom, a senior marathon runner. And I can tell you as a marathon runner, anybody in his age bracket that can do 26.2 miles is just, you know, and, and supreme fitness. But what we're going to do is we're going to send you some information on McCullough Protocol Base Spike Detoxification. You can get this. You can order it online or health store in the UK near you. And uh, why don't you give it a try? Uh, take it at That's the well. recommended doses. And then you could even double the doses if well tolerated after, let's say, a month or so. And then we're gonna, we want you to report in. It's going to take a little while, Rod, probably three, six, nine, or 12 months. But the next time we see you, we're going to want to see you be able to stand up 
then ultimately become free of the wheelchair. Well, that would be wonderful. Okay, well, listen, we made our mark. So let's see how you do over the next few months. I'm Dr. Peter McCullough, and you've been listening to the McCullough Report and Courageous Discourse Substack. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report. Change in the world one person at a time. Here we take on the challenges of our generation so that we can preserve future generations. We know that if America fails, the world will fail. It is incumbent upon us to carry the torch for liberty. America Out Loud Talk Radio. It's a fight for the soul of humanity. Cofix RX nasal solution has completed the circle and is now offering throat spray with povidone iodine. That completes the protocol doctors like Peter McCullough recommend. If staying healthy is important, you'll want to make sure to add throat spray to your next order of Cofix RX. For a limited time and exclusive for America Out Loud listeners only, you can save 25% off your entire order. Let's double down against colds, flus, strep, RSV, HRV, COVID, and more. Click the banner or go to America Out Loud shop to get 25% off your entire order. Use coupon code OUTLOUD25. That's coupon code OUTLOUD25. I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. I'm a practicing internist and cardiologist in Dallas, Texas. I'm also trained as an epidemiologist. I've been in clinical practice now for many decades. And let me say at the outset that uh, prior to the pandemic, I had seen in clinical practice two cases of myocarditis, one of which was fatal, sadly. Uh, But myocarditis was, prior to the pandemic, an infrequent clinical concern and it was an infrequent clinical diagnosis. Now we knew before the pandemic that myocarditis or heart inflammation had some strict contraindications for management. One of them was a strict avoidance of exercise because exercise would and could trigger a cardiac arrest. And that's the reason why patients with myocarditis may not exercise. Uh, And so if there's any suspicion of that, we immediately ask about sports. Treatment of myocarditis always varied according to the uh, etiology, but the myocarditis treatment trial uh, did not give us any clear guidance. It wasn't clear about uh, corticosteroids, colchicine, plasma exchange, IVIG, uh, the one thing was good that was certain is that we treated the underlying condition the best we could, and we treated uh, with drugs to prevent the development of heart failure if patients had high risk for arrhythmias. We implanted ICDs by and large. So that was myocarditis before the pandemic. Now the title of this talk is COVID-19 Vaccine-Induced Myocarditis. What prompted this lecture was a, re- was a request from uh, Brazilian colleagues uh, for a presentation before authorities in Brazil and widely the South American audience. So I wanted to go ahead and make this presentation. I will not be covering Chagas or some of the other uh, Southern Hemisphere specific etiologies. I'll focus on COVID-19 and the vaccines. I'll follow this outline and make a few comments with respect to each one of these bullets. The first one is 
a search for SARS-CoV-2 myocarditis. And that's right. There was a search to find, find out whether or not the viral infection caused heart inflammation or damage. And what we know is that the signs and symptoms of heart inflammation or myocarditis and commonly inflammation of the lining around the heart, pericarditis, um, that they can include shortness of breath, flu-like symptoms, swelling of the arms and legs, uh, chest pain, nausea, vomiting, and sometimes sudden cardiac arrest. Uh, that this, These are the quintessential features of heart inflammation. And in the context of COVID-19, we'd want to know when the illness was. And in the context of the vaccines, we'd want to know the brand, the lot number, and the dates of doses 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6. So that is myocarditis or heart inflammation. Why was this a concern for the infection? Ralph Barrick at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill, who is the world's leading authority on coronaviruses, he was the architect of engineering and creating SARS-CoV-2, the infection that got the world sick. Uh, he published in the American Journal of Cardiology, a journal that was edited out of my office uh, for many decades uh, in Dallas, in the American Journal of Cardiology, a title of this paper is, is an experimental model for dilated cardiomyopathy after rat, uh, after rabbit coronavirus infection. What Barrick showed is that uh, coronaviruses indeed could cause myocarditis and actually cardiomyopathy and heart failure uh, when they were given in a very high dose uh, locally administered to animals. So this raised the issue of whether a human beta coronavirus or particularly a chimeric virus that is a blend of a bat coronavirus with a human virus, which was what SARS-CoV-2 was, whether or not that could cause myocarditis. So the entire world with the COVID pandemic was on edge regarding potential heart inflammation. And let me tell you what, leagues took this seriously. The uh, NCAA Collegiate League, uh, Big Ten, screened thousands of athletes for myocarditis in this study. Uh, by Daniels and colleagues. As you can see, they came up with uh, about 36 putative cases of myocarditis. 30% of the athletes got sick with COVID during 2020. Uh, 36 putative cases by MRI, detailed biomarker testing, EKGs, none of which involved hospitalization and death. We've subsequently had a paper recently published in circulation confirming that no college athlete developed uh, myocarditis that resulted in death uh, among our sports leagues. So this was very reassuring among athletes who uh, were at the highest risk for myocarditis because of this uh, recurrent uh, exercise and the risk for triggering arrhythmias, uh, that this wasn't the, <coughs> the case. Now, two valiant colleagues in Israel published a population-based study demonstrating that the rates of myocarditis in 2021 with COVID were no different than the background rates. So this was very reassuring that we were not seeing significant myocarditis with COVID-19, the illness, very importantly. Uh, we, we, these are the population-based uh, data. What had come out of uh, the talking points from what we call the, now the government false narrative was that there was more myocarditis with COVID than there was the vaccines. It simply wasn't the case because we didn't have data from Daniels or Tuvalli, and we couldn't rely on unadjudicated cases <coughs> from hospital-level troponin, which was probably driving these observations. Now we turn our attention to vaccine-induced 
myocarditis. Here, the pathophysiology is clear. In this paper by Avolio and colleagues, the spike protein, as shown here as these blue buds, that is produced by the genetic code for uh, that, that's contained in the vaccines, the messenger and adenoviral DNA vaccines, it does damage pericytes uh, through a variety of signaling pathways, inflammation, uh, and the pericytes, which uh, help keep the integrity of the capillaries intact, are damaged. And as, that, as a putative mechanism, the cardiomyocytes are damaged. Crossan and colleagues from Harvard in patients who have died after COVID-19 vaccination has found messenger RNA in the wall of the left and right ventricle, as you can see here, and it's associated with inflammation. Now in this study, their stain for the spike protein did not come out very well, but we have a clear evidence here that messenger RNA gets stuck in the heart of people who die after COVID-19 vaccination. Bowmeyer and colleagues who did an adequate stain for the spike protein in people who are alive, uh, hospitalized with myocarditis, clearly found spike protein in the human heart. So as we sit here today, the COVID-19 vaccines, messenger RNA and adenoviral DNA vaccines go to the heart, they produce spike protein, the spike protein causes inflammation and damage in the human heart. And this is shown uh, with the most detailed necropsy and autopsy studies. And this paper by Schreckenberg and colleagues, British Journal of Pharmacology, has demonstrated that both with Pfizer and Moderna within 48 hours, there are cellular toxicity changes seen in rat cardiomyocytes, changes in contractile pattern and depolarization. So there's direct evidence of messenger RNA cardiotoxicity with Pfizer and Moderna. Uh, this recent paper by Nakahara and colleagues, 700 uh, vaccinated, 300 unvaccinated. You can see here marked differences in cardiac PET changes. Cardiac uh, positron emission tomography, normally the human heart takes up free fatty acids as shown here in this vaccine negative scan, basically green and blue. However, when the vaccine is taken for up to six months, there's intense uptake of fluorodeoxyglucose. The, the heart shifts from preferring normally free fatty acids to a diseased pattern of preferring fluorodeoxyglucose, which we normally see in chronic ischemia. Uh, at this point in time, the findings are unknown. What's striking about this paper is how uniform people who took the vaccine were affected, number one. And number two, those who got a sore arm had more uptake of fluorodeoxyglucose than those who did not have a sore arm or symptom. So a sore arm seems to correlate with what's going on in the heart. That's also been shown by autopsy by Schwab and colleagues from Germany. Now, the epidemiology of this is as follows. Uh, Husby and colleagues have shown, when we look at head-to-head -head data from a relative perspective, there's a greater risk with the original Moderna vaccines than the Pfizer vaccines. Recall that Moderna's dose of messenger RNA is 100 micrograms per dose of the initial primary series, whereas Pfizer, it was 30 micrograms. Two studies now, Mansugian and Buren, have settled in on a rate of 2.5% for myocarditis per shot in these studies. Mansugian studied the second shot in uh, young people aged 13 to 18, and Buren studied uh, healthcare workers on shot number three. They came out with similar numbers. So in, in the two only prospective cohort studies that exist, the rate of heart damage 
using a fair set of definitions, uh, biomarkers, and uh, tiered levels of testing centers around 2.5%. That would be the accepted incidence from the only two prospective cohort studies available. Yonker and colleagues demonstrated from Harvard that among children hospitalized with vaccine myocarditis, those who uh, uh, have myocarditis have free circulating spike protein, but they have no antibodies to block the spike protein, so the spike protein is allowed to damage the heart, whereas the children who do not have myocarditis, that indeed they have appropriate levels of neutralizing antibodies that bind the spike protein. So this may explain why some develop myocarditis and others don't. Some children and young adults may not generate a library of uh, neutralizing antibodies to handle the production of spike protein. Allison Krug and colleagues demonstrated early on that uh, a large fraction of young adults who develop clinical myocarditis indeed are hospitalized. So a complication that requires hospitalization death is always considered serious. So it's a serious adverse event. Uh, our regulatory agencies uh, characterized myocarditis as mild. Uh, that was incorrect since the Krug data and other data suggest the vast majority are hospitalized. 86% required hospitalizations. And in the Krug analysis from University of California at Davis, healthy boys had considerably higher chances of hospitalization with myocarditis than with COVID-19 respiratory illness, even at the peak of the pandemic. Now, both in the UK and in Australia, there are now guidelines on how to diagnose and manage COVID-19 vaccine-induced myocarditis. It's that common of a complication. We actually have position statements regarding the use of cardiac MRI, what's called the Lake Louise uh, uh, criteria that we use by MRI. Uh, Keshavara and colleagues from Cedar sinai uh, demonstrated in a large series of myocarditis, 94% were hospitalized with vaccine myocarditis, 91% had positive MRIs with late gadolinium enhancement showing inflammation, and the long-term outcomes were unknown. But you can see on this MRI that the, the area of damage is oh, see, typically the lateral uh, outside uh, wall, the, the epicardium, and is contiguous with the pericardium. So it was almost always myopericarditis. I participated in this study with Jessica Rose. We demonstrated that there are clear cases of myocarditis on shot one, shot two, and shot three, most commonly at shot two. Uh, it, usually the peak age is 18 to 24, but there is a tail uh, that extends all the way up into the 60s and 70s. 90% of cases are men. Every study has shown this. Jenna Schauer in the journal Pediatrics demonstrated that among children, that about half of the children have no symptoms of myocarditis. It's picked up incidentally. They had no chest pain or any uh, thoracic pain that would have indicated myocarditis. And in the Schauer papers, they are showing large areas of damage. Now, to give you a reference point, 15% of the left ventricle is considered a large area of damage, large enough that actually a cardiac arrest could occur due to reentrant ventricular tachycardia or spontaneous ventricular fibrillation. Here in the Jenna Shower paper, as you can see, a young 16-year-old boy um, has myocarditis, and the initial uh, size of the uh, damage was 26% of the left ventricle, and it reduced to 19.8% at 4.4 months. I can tell you as a cardiologist, these are striking findings to see that uh, size of damage occurring to the heart in children who had taken the COVID-19 vaccine. 
Barmada and colleagues from Yale demonstrated that 80% of the cardiac MRIs are not normalizing by nine months. This is very worrisome. So the heart is not repairing itself after vaccine damage. This would predict that the clinical outcomes could be severe. And indeed, that's the case. Uh, this paper from Asia by Lim and colleagues demonstrates a previously healthy 38-year-old female who received the Pfizer vaccine seven days presented with ongoing chest pain and had hemodynamic collapse, required uh, 10 minutes of CPR, full support, and the Korean doctors were able to save her. Uh, so this was a near miss, but it's a clear case of fulminant myocarditis with cardiogenic shock. Choi uh, presented this case, a man who's not so fortunate, a 22-year-old man developed chest pain five days after the first dose of Pfizer, and he died seven hours later in the Korean hospital. And his heart, as shown here, is loaded with inflammation, loaded, heart basically destroyed by inflammation. Fatal case, clear cut. Gill and colleagues, two teenage boys, age 16 and 17, were found dead in bed on days three and four after Pfizer. Uh, the pathology is reviewed by pathologists from the University of Michigan, University of Minnesota, the Connecticut coroner. They agree it's COVID-19 vaccine-induced myocarditis, and they speculate that it's the rise in catecholamines between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., uh, which is a part of the normal waking cycle that triggered the fatal events. These boys didn't even have a chance for CPR or 911. The parents found them dead in bed with confirmed Pfizer COVID-19 fatal myocarditis. Pantone and colleagues from the UK used automated sources of data and described vaccine-associated myocarditis in a stunning report. There were 100 fatal cases 51 occurred with AstraZeneca and 49 occurred with Pfizer, messenger RNA vaccine. So it occurs with both the adenoviral and the uh, messenger RNA vaccines. I would say separately, there have been non-fatal cases reported with the Novavax uh, antigen-based vaccine. Hosher and colleagues, and I am a co-author on this paper, I've collated all the autopsies available, including the ones I've shared with you so far, in a um, manuscript that's under review. And in this paper, we describe a total of 28 cases. All the cases were confirmed to be myocarditis. The vast majority, it's myopericarditis alone, uh, and only 7% are there inflammation of other organs, so it appears to be targeted. And the peak incident is, incidence is about eight days after taking the the vaccine. What can we do about it? Sadly, so many people have taken a vaccine. Now there's great concerns. Risk mitigation is very important. This is probably the most important slide I'll share with you, and we'll go through this. The COVID-19 vaccine installs the genetic code for the spike protein. The messenger RNA and the spike protein, as I've shared with you, targets the human heart. 90% of cases are men, 10% are women. There is a genetic predisposition for sudden death. It's called the SCN5A mutation. There's many described mutations. That's been shown in at least two studies. And there are hot lots. That is, there are lots of the vaccine that appear to be more loaded with messenger RNA or may have uh, degrees of process-related contaminants. Uh, but suffice it to say, there are certain lots that appear to be far more lethal than other lots. There is cumulative spike protein exposure priming uh, COVID-19 plus the vaccines, 
a hemodynamic distribution to the myocardium. The athletes continue to exercise, so there's more and more uptake of genetic material into the heart. Pericytes take it up clearly, and the spike protein mediates inflammation and damage. Now, 40, 57% are subclinical if they have symptoms. 43% have symptoms like chest pain, effort intolerance, palpitations, syncope, fever. Detection is by history and physical exam, blood tests, uh, uh, troponin, BMP, ST2, galactin-3, EKG, echocardiography for LV dysfunction, and for effusion. And then the gold standard is the cardiac MRI. We use the Lake Louise criteria. And you can see on this MRI, a large area, again, is typically in the uh, lateral uh, inferior wall involving the outer part. Uh, and it's mild, it's, uh, mild pericarditis, as you can see here, it lights up in white. Um, biopsy would show spike protein and messenger RNA if appropriately stained. The worry here is that athletes and young people, either during exertion, the, again, the surge of adrenaline, or during sleep during the waking hours, uh, that it triggers re-entrant ventricular tachycardia. That's what's shown here. And this degenerates to ventricular fibrillation. And if we can't get there quick enough with prompt defibrillation, the patient succumbs. In the uh, athletes who have died so far, uh, well more than uh, 1,000 in uh, Europe, uh, about a third are able to be resuscitated on the field and saved, and two-thirds sadly pass away. And that, those data have been published by Polycretus and colleagues. Now, here's an athlete who made the right move, Fabian Schrump. I was triple vaccinated. She developed myocarditis. She's an Olympic marathoner. She announces she's taken three vaccines. She's had myocarditis, and she is going to stop running. She has not returned to uh, racing at this point in time. That's the right uh, decision. Oscar Cabrera Adamas was not so fortunate. He's a basketball player from the Dominican Republic, played in Spain. He expressed doubts regarding the COVID-19 vaccine. He takes the vaccines, suffers myocarditis, has a cardiac arrest while playing basketball, is resuscitated. He's resuscitated. And then he takes two years out, treated for myocarditis, and unfortunately, as shown in this panel, he dies on a medical treadmill. This is the last picture before he dies. He did not have a defibrillator implanted, apparently. And he is, I think, the most clear-cut example that it's possible to take two primary series uh, injections in 2021 and die of myocarditis in 2023. And he's perfectly fit. So this is the great concern, is the case of Oscar Cabrera Adamas, clear-cut, proven vaccine-induced myocarditis in 2021, dies of a cardiac arrest in 2023. Besides uh, the routine management of myocarditis and the difficult decision on an ICD, we have proposed base spike protein detoxification uh, in a peer-reviewed paper that appeared in the Journal of American Physicians and Surgeons in August of 2023. We have proposed using natokinase, 2,000 units twice a day, bromelain 500 milligrams a day and curcumin 500 milligrams twice a day uh, as a method of helping the body detoxify from the spike protein. The spike protein from the vaccine is the full length spike protein. Uh, it does not appear to be cleaved by human peptidases. Uh, these external peptidases available in uh, oral over-the-counter supplements, bromelain and nanokinase do appear to break down the spike protein in preclinical models. And curcumin, which is an anti-inflammatory, has been studied 
in long COVID and post-vaccine injury syndromes, and it reduces uh, measures of inflammation in the blood in randomized trials. So we proposed using these three over-the-counter supplements initially in low doses, and it can be escalated over time as base spike protein detoxification. Now, we've had no funding, and there are no large prospective double-blind randomized placebo-controlled trials, so I cannot make therapeutic claims, but I can tell you clinically, I've been doing this now for well over a year in my office. I've checked with other doctors doing the same. We are seeing patients improve, particularly the neurologic syndromes, improve uh, chest pain, palpitations, fluctuations in blood pressure. All of those seem to improve at about the three, six, nine, and 12 month mark. It's a slow process, but base spike protein detoxification does appear clinically under direct observation uh, to uh, have a, a role. Now, we do this in addition to other drugs for myocarditis. My standard is to use a three-month a three prolonged taper of oral prednisone, oral colchicine for an entire year. Use ACE inhibitors and evidence-based beta blockers for LV dysfunction. I know my Japanese colleagues use intravenous immunoglobulin or plasma exchange additionally. Doctors will tailor their strategies for myocarditis, but we believe as a base, this simple oral um, available uh, supplement approach, which has medicinal effects that we can see in the literature, and it's all summarized in this paper, is a reasonable proposal uh, until we can have large prospective randomized trials in society or government-based protocols on how to treat the burgeoning numbers of patients who are developing vaccine-induced myocarditis. So to finish and conclude, SARS-CoV-2 infection does not cause frequent or serious myocarditis, and athletic programs dropped screening after the infection in 2020. The vaccine-induced myocarditis is common and has no initial symptoms in half of patients. 90% are men ages 18 to 14. Cardiac arrest is the initial manifestation with a surge of adrenaline uh, during sports and during the waking process from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. Circulating spike protein and abnormal PET scans in over half of vaccine recipients have an ominous signal for the population. Inflammation in the heart is not resolving over time. Early detection, withdrawal from exercise, and treatment are warranted. Large-scale population detoxification should be considered as risk mitigation at this point in time until there are definitive uh, protocols. I'm Dr. Peter McCullough, practicing internist and cardiologist, and this has been COVID-19 vaccine-induced myocarditis, state-of-the-art. Thank you so much for listening.